following audio is from a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 1, 18 through 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is the word of the Lord. Driving down 16th Street, uh, I think it was actually yesterday, maybe a couple days ago. Driving down 16th Street here, rolling past uh, one of one of my favorite Mexican spots. There's a taqueria up on the street here. And I just can't help it but notice that there is a Christmas wreath hanging up over the door. Like, it's not that they left it up there from last Christmas. Like, it, it just went up. And, and I was thinking to myself, like, this seems a, a little bit premature, right? Uh, I, I don't even think Target has Christmas stuff out yet, do they? Maybe they do. I don't know. I haven't been there. Amy Perry would know. She, she's in on it. She's giving me the guess. It's up. Today's sermon might feel a little bit like that. Uh, a little bit premature, right? Because what we're looking at here is a passage uh, that is typically used during the Advent season about this, this child who is born of a virgin, who came, who is, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Um, and, and so, like, why, why would we look at this passage in the middle of September, right? Are we doing some Christmas and September stuff? No, we're not doing that. Actually, what's happening today is we, we, we're making our way through the Apostles' Creed. Um, and, and the Apostles' Creed is this short, concise summary of sort of the skeleton of the Christian faith. It's, it's, it's basically the mere Christianity. T- to be a Christian means that you hold to these truths and doctrines. And so as we are making our way through the Apostles' Creed, we come to the line, I believe in Jesus Christ. His only Son, our Lord, and what we're looking at today, who was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. And so the Apostles' Creed begs for us to jump into this passage. Um, last week, we waited through the front half of this when we're talking about Jesus. We're, we're, what we're really, the, the middle section of the Apostles' Creed is giving us a Christology. It's telling us, it's informing us about the person, the nature, the roles, and the work of Christ on our behalf. And so really, the, the whole focus, the centerpiece of the Apostles' Creed is Jesus himself. And when Peter preached the first ever sermon at Pentecost, really like the punchline, the, the thing that really got people choked up here is when he, he said, I want you to know for certain that God has made Jesus Christ, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. And it says people were just cut to the heart by that. And last week we started unpacking that. So if you missed that piece, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and Christ? I'd say go back and listen to that. Um, but, but here we're kind of digging in. We're taking the next step into this Christology. And we're like, how can Jesus fill this messianic role? How, how can Jesus be the Savior and 
king. And so the beginning to that answer is actually found in this second piece with I believe in Jesus Christ who is uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And listen, I want you to know this isn't just like a Christmas topic. Right? This, this isn't just an idea that we celebrate in the month of December. This is actually something that as Christians we should hold dear and near to our heart. It actually speaks to the deepest longings you have. And so I want to do two things today. I want to show you, I want to show you why the virgin birth, the, the conception of the Holy Spirit has to be true. And secondly, I want to show you why you want it to be true. Okay, so that's where we're going to go today. I'm going to pray. Father... Father God, would you be near to us in this time? Would you open up your words so that we might understand, uh, uh, unblock our ears, uh, open our eyes, God, and, and let our hearts be ready to receive what you would have for us today. God, I ask that you would help me to think clearly, to speak with precision. God, would my heart be engaged, Father God, because you are worth it. Uh, would you help us to see that? Would you reveal yourself to us this morning through your word, and it's in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. When we profess, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, what we're saying is, as Christians, we believe in the supernatural. We believe that we don't live in a closed world where everything can be explained uh, by reason, by uh, evidence. There, there are things that are outside of the scope of explanation, by, uh, that can't be measured. And so we're saying that there is the supernatural world. And when we look at this passage to say Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, we're saying that. And what you probably know is to be conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin isn't something that happens naturally, right? The, Jesus Christ is one of one who can say, yeah, I was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, no big deal. What about you? It's like, well, I got a biological father and my mother wasn't in that position. So uh, it doesn't happen naturally. Every child has a biological dad and there's a process to conception, so what Matthew 1.18 is telling us is that God broke the mold. He broke the pattern of the natural reproductive order in order to bring about this person we know as Jesus Christ. In fact, in Matthew 1.18, it starts out here. It says, if I can find it. He says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged, pledged to marry Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this idea of before they came together uh, is, is a euphemism. That, that Mary and Joseph had not exercised their marital rights at this point, yet Mary in her state is found to be with child who we are told to be from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something that uh, any mindful person would be a little bit skeptical of, Right? Because what this is claiming is highly unlikely. It doesn't seem to flow in with the natural pattern. It seems so strange. And so it's right to be curious, like, what? Like, what do you mean by this? Um, and through the years, through the centuries, it hasn't been uncommon for people to look at this and say, well, this is so unlikely. I just want to treat this as a bit of a legend. Like this, this seems like a bit of mythology that we have given to make this Jesus to be somebody who we want him to be. 
And so what happens is people start to look for a more natural explanation, right? Mary was, you know, she was a little promiscuous. Joseph, he got duped. It's really some sort of like Jerry Springer-esque sort of scenario is, is what we think of what would happen, right? How, how can this really be the case? But three times in Luke's gospel, who, who is basically giving account of the same thing as Matthew, he is giving account of the same thing, he asserts in just a couple of verses that Mary is in fact a virgin. Three times. Now, a skeptic might look at this and suggest, well, you know, maybe scripture isn't forthright. You know, maybe it's bending the truth a little bit, giving this minor, bl- uh, a minor bluff, changing this detail so that we can actually have this Jesus that we want. And, and, and really, if you start to think that way, if, if you're thinking down that path, it will eventually lead you to create and it creates some validity and authority issues of scripture. Because if this one piece is a bluff, if it's not true, then couldn't we say the rest of the rest of scripture, right? And if you follow that line of thinking all the way through, it'll lead you to question the resurrection, right? Did Jesus actually, was he killed? And then is he actually risen from the dead? That's what that line of thinking will eventually take you. It's got this ripple effect. And if you take away the supernatural thing of the virgin birth and the resurrection, what happens? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, there's no resurrection. There's no gospel. There's no Christianity. Our faith is futile. It's, it's worthless, and so we say, well, then, then this must be true. Well, the last leg of holdout on this thing, on this skepticism of how can this virgin birth be a thing, is like, do I have to believe this in order to be a Christian? Right? Can't I just, you know, okay, sure, you say that, I'm, I'm going to, logic is going to lead me in this other direction and tell me, no, you know, that's, it's a bit of myth. But, and we start to wonder, can't Jesus just be my good teacher? Can't I just take the things that he says, learn from him like some sort of moral example, and kind of leave behind the other supernatural bits that just don't really fit in with this sort of naturalistic world that we find ourselves in? Now, you wouldn't be alone in doing that. In fact, Thomas Jefferson uh, famously took the Bible... And what he would do, he'd cut out all of the pieces of scripture, one, either one that he didn't like or had supernatural, so basically saying that God was doing something outside of the natural order, and he would just cut it out until he had just a few, you know, verses, and that was his, his Bible that he, we, we can do that, but that's not going to lead you to salvation. That's not going to lead you to embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. So yeah, we have to believe this in order to be a Christian. In fact, Karl Barth insists, not only do we need to accept this, but we should do so joyfully. Now why would that be the case? It's because the virgin birth is the linchpin that holds the gospel together. If you take away the virgin birth, all of the other stuff that we profess as Christians crumbles apart, it deteriorates, and, and, and we're left with no gospel at all. Now, that might seem like there's a, a lot riding on this hard-to-believe, uh, unprovable, improbable event that we might want to dismiss as a, a minor detail. But, but to label it as a detail is a severe disservice because this idea of the incarnation, that God would become man, carries tremendous significance. Right? These aren't just random facts. What's happening here is through the Apostles' Creed, through Scripture, Jesus, or God, is revealing to us Jesus' very nature, that he is both God and man. 
Now, this is one of the focuses of Christology, but like the nature of God. And if you were here last week, we dove into the meaning of, uh, I believe in Jesus, God's only Son. And, and, and so I don't feel like I need to prove that so much because you can go back and listen to it if you want. But, but one of the things here that, that um, Alistair McGrath asserts is that to say Jesus is God's Son is to say that Jesus himself is God. This is an identity piece that Jesus is God, that he's deity. But a misbelief would be like, oh, well, Jesus got beamed down from heaven. You know, he's just a God in a human suit. That's, that's not the case. That's docetism. Nor did he rise through the rank of humanity to become deity. That's, that's humanitarianism. That's not the gospel. But something more profound happened. Now, now just try to get your mind around this for a moment. That the infinite God of the universe, the God who cannot be contained, the God who defies all laws, the God who holds all power, this God, the God of the universe, becomes a zygote. The God of the universe becomes a fetus. Now you wonder why Christians care so much about abortion and, and preserving life. It's because God himself validates and himself assumes maybe the most vulnerable position in our society. God becomes a baby. We saw in verse 18 that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit. This means that Jesus didn't have a biological father, that, that the Holy Spirit hovered over the Virgin Mary, just as Isaiah 7 prophesies. We saw that it's actually verse 23, it's quoted, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And this idea of the Holy Spirit hovering over or coming over the Virgin Mary is similar to what happens in, in Genesis chapter 3 where God is hovering over the creation. The Spirit of God hovers over. And so in this moment, we see God is recreating. He's doing something new. It's as if he's making a new creation. If you read through the book of Re uh, Romans, when God was created in the garden, Adam and Eve, now here in, in, in Bethlehem, well, not in Bethlehem yet, but in Nazareth, God is hovering over this woman and is making a new creation, this new Adam, as Romans tells us. Now, the significance of this is that being conceived by the Holy Spirit, not having a biological father, Jesus is born without original sin. Original sin is this, this default that we all have. In fact, when David is writing in the Psalms, he, in Psalm 51, he says, I was born into sin. My mother conceived me in iniquity. Everybody inherits a sinful nature because of our first parents, Adam and Eve in the garden. And with this original sin comes this gravitational pull that we have to do the wrong thing. It's sort of like this heat seeker in our souls that leads us in the wrong direction. Romans 5 says, By one man sin entered, and with sin entering, sin led to death, so that death spread to all men. We all have inherited this original sin. But Jesus was not born into sin. He had no earthly father to inherit that from. 
Yet at the same time, Jesus was born into the line of David as the first, first half of Matthew chapter 1 shows. That, that Mary and Joseph were together part of the line of David. That God had promised that one day a Messiah, one, one day a Savior would rise up from this genealogy. And this Jesus, this, he, he was carried in womb for nine months. He was delivered. And, and you, know, you know the nativity story. Heaven celebrated. It was a big deal because God had become man. God had come to us. In fact, that's what his name means, Emmanuel. In verse 23, it says, They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. John chapter 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, a common misconception we have, like, okay, Jesus was born of Mary, but conceived of the Holy Spirit. He, he must be like some half and half deal, right? Half God, half man, like he's some sort of cosmic interracial child, but, but that's not what, what has happened here. Because what Scripture teaches is that Jesus is fully God and fully man. That, that He can fully associate with God and fully associate with humanity. This is called, it's a theological $5 word for you, or term, the hypostatic union. And this is a big deal and something that we're, that Christians over the centuries have been fighting for to preserve God's or Jesus' dual nature as God and as man. In fact, the, the Chalcedonian Creed says Jesus' two natures are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Jesus is one. He is very God and very man. Now, I get it. This concept is hard to wrap your mind around because there's nothing else quite like this. Right? But this is what Scripture explicitly and subtly presents to us for, for us to wrestle with, that Jesus is both God and man. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It says that Jesus, the, the fullness of God, was pleased to dwell in Jesus. And then we can go through the Gospels and see his humanity, that Jesus, he grew. You, you, you keep reading through Matthew that he grew in height, stature, and wisdom. That he had emotions. He felt pain. He knew what it was like to be hungry and to be thirsty. And at the end of his life, he bled and he died just like humanity. Now, here's why this is so important. Here's why Christians have been fighting to preserve this reality of the dual nature of Jesus as fully God and fully man. It's, it's because if you lose this line of the Apostles' Creed, that he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, you lose Christianity. Because to believe the gospel means that you see Jesus as your sacrificial substitute. Now, all through the Old Testament, we have these sacrifices to kind of point us in this direction. In fact, that's what they're for. These sacrifices that point to, in fact, the, the main one from the book of Exodus, this, this sacrificial Passover lamb, a spotless lamb who's without blemish, who is, who is slain and his blood is put over the doorpost and the angel of death passes over and spares all who are under the blood. See, so it's those who 
claim the blood of the lamb that were spared, that the lamb died instead of them. And so we see this idea perpetuate through the Old Testament through sacrifices in the temple where those who were sinners would come and offer a sacrifice that an animal of some sort was killed in their place and their sin was dealt with so that sin would no longer be held against them. Now all of these sacrifices, in fact, if you look at the Old Testament, the Old Testament's pretty bloody. Like, the concept of sacrifices being offered continually, day in and day out, over and over and over again. But Christians believe that Jesus is the ultimate and final Passover lamb. That he is the lamb that, that because he was slain now gives life to all who claim his blood. In fact, at the beginning of John's gospel, when John the baptizer is out there dunking people, offering this new life, he looks at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world. What he's saying here is that, that Jesus is this true and better Passover Lamb who, is, who lived the perfect life. He was sinless, without blemish. He lived the sinless life that you and I were meant to live but can't. Because, first of all, we have this original sin. We were born into sin, but also we are actively sinning against God. So Jesus, he lives the life we're supposed to live, and then he goes and he dies the death that you and I deserve to die, but he does it in your place. He says, no, no, I'll, I'll lay down on the altar so you can live. And so as Christians, we look at Jesus, we see him as his Passover lamb. He's the sacrifice. He's our substitute. And what Martin Luther said happens here is this great exchange that, that Jesus became sin so that we may become the righteousness of God. So Jesus takes our sin, we get his righteousness. We get his sinlessness. We get the right standing before God. And in this transaction, we are both pardoned of our sin, but also called blameless. That's the gospel. But if you lose the humanity of Jesus, what happens is you lose your substitute. Through the Old Testament, over and over again, the book of Leviticus says it explicitly that sin demands blood payment. See, this misconception that we have, if we do something wrong, God, I promise I'll do better, I'll work it off if you just let me off the hook. No, that doesn't work. The only way sin can be dealt with is if there is blood payment. And if Jesus isn't a human, if he doesn't have flesh and blood like us, and he lives the perfect life, if he's not that human, then he can't live the perfect life. The perfect human life is left unachieved. Plus, gods don't bleed. Right? The God of the Bible can't die. Like it's, it's embedded in his name. When, when Moses asked, well, if, I, if somebody asks who's sending me back to Egypt, who should I say is sending me? God says, I am. Not I was. Not I will be. I am. God is. But in his humanity, in the incarnation, 
Jesus becomes a man so he can bleed. You realize that? Jesus became a man so he can bleed. So it could be his blood and not your own. And, and listen, and, and to get Jesus to the point where he did bleed, what really displayed is the sinfulness of humanity. The fact that humans are capable of killing an innocent person. But Jesus was this sinless man. He lived the perfect life so he could take your place as a substitute. But he isn't just a human. God, Jesus has to be God as well because if Jesus isn't God, then he can only do that for one person. It would be a one-for-one transaction, right? But if Jesus is God, if he is immeasurable, Omnipotent. If he has the power to overcome all things, then Jesus can not only do it for one person, but he can do it for all. In fact, Romans 10, 13 tells us, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus is this one for all sacrifice because he is God. So if you want salvation, then the incarnation has to be true. It's the linchpin of Christianity. Without it, the whole faith falls apart. So that's why it has to be true. Here's why you will want it to be true. That was kind of heavy theological work. Here's why you want it to be true. Have you ever done something and and you're just overwhelmed with guilt? You, you did something wrong. I, and it can look like a, a billion different things. You do something wrong and you're just overwhelmed with guilt to the point where it's like you got this pit in your stomach. You can hardly even face it. You know, like when a kid breaks a neighbor's window with a baseball on accident, they get this pit in their gut. Oh man, I messed up. I did something wrong. I feel guilty. Now there's some people who feel like this all the time. They carry this weight. Says, Man, I messed up. I really did it this time. It's like they have chronic guilt. Whether it's the same sins, the same sin over and over and over, or it's a sin from the past that just keeps coming up and haunting us. I just feel responsible. I feel like I did something wrong. It's like you've got this burden weighing down on your shoulders. And when you feel that way, which we all do, that's one of God's graces to us to feel guilt. It's because it it indicates you did something wrong. You need to fix it. You need to turn from it. When you feel that guilt, you have one of two options. One, you can either, you, you can run from it. You can hide from it. You can pretend it doesn't exist. You can ignore it, try to dismiss it. I mean, you you can get real crafty and and try to mask it with self-help mantras. I just need to try harder, do better, and then I'll overcome. I'm better than this. I know I can be better than this. And you think it's buried down deep? Man, I really did a good job of shutting that down. And eventually, that guilt will raise its arm up from the grave and grab you by the throat. It controls you. It dominates you. 
like you look at the Psalms, like physically make you sick. I, I listen. I think there are some people in this room that have physical symptoms of a spiritual problem. That there's something so twisted and distraught in your soul with this guilt that it's causing you to be sick to your stomach, you get headaches, anxiety that just pours out in a myriad of different things. And this guilt pops up after you think you got it stuffed down and it controls you, it dominates you, you get consumed by it, and really what it leads you to is just an impaired life. A a sub-human life. It's not good at all. I don't recommend that first option. The second option, it's kind of scary on the front end. It's scary at at first because it it requires some courage. It it requires the capacity to own it, that, that I did do something wrong, that I did mess up, I did make a mistake, that I've got to own it. I blew it. My anger got away from me. I couldn't, I couldn't control my impulses. I said something really hurtful. Whatever it is, we have our own version of breaking windows. And rarely are they made of glass. And if you were to go through your life and, and take all of the shards of broken glass that sort of find their way throughout the story of your life and you heap them up, the pile of broken windows would easily be a mile high. There's, there's just so much we should feel guilty for because we actually have done something wrong. But the courageous kid, he grabs his dad. He, he goes, Dad, listen, Dad, I did something so wrong. Will you, will you come with me? Will you come across the fence so I can talk to the neighbor? I'm kind of scared. And, and you do this because, the kid does this because he knows that his dad is in his corner. Like his dad is flesh and blood. You, you know that if you go across the street with dad, you know dad's going to be there to protect you, to shield you. But at the same time, your dad has some favor with your neighbor because your dad's an adult too. You're not. You know, the kid, he's not an adult. And so the, the dad has this ability to, to be in this middle ground of, of the offender and the offended. Now, what is that? What, what is dad doing? Dad is being a mediator. He, he's being someone who can work the middle ground, who can interact with both parties, the offender and the offended, without compromising the integrity of either to resolve the issue. Now, if we look at all the broken shards of glass in our life, we see the way, places where we've messed up, where we've sinned. That's the biblical word for it, where we've sinned. We have to realize, Psalm 51, man, it, it tells us that all of our sin is ultimately against God. Yeah, you might have gossiped against a coworker. But you, you might have got angry at your spouse and blew a lid. But ultimately, all of your sin is against God. And so we can't just waltz across the street, chomping on a bagel and sipping our donut, right? And say like, what up, dude? Uh Uh-uh. 
No, no, no. God is a holy God that sin cannot be tolerated in his presence. In order to make that approach, we need a mediator. Now, in the Old Testament, the priests were that mediator. They, they, were, they were the men in the, the temple that were devoted to standing in the middle ground between a holy God and sinful people, offering those sacrifices, interceding on behalf of the people, communicating to the people what God says. But now, in Jesus, we have a great high priest. There, there's no need for priests anymore. That Jesus is the great high priest. In fact, 1 Timothy 2 says that Jesus is the mediator who goes between God and humanity. There's only need for one. And so Jesus walks across the cosmic fence and he begins the process of reconciliation. And you know what he does? He approaches God the Father and he says, Look, I know Sam messed up. And you can see the broken window. He's kind of a bonehead. He's done it once or twice before. But do you remember what I did for him to make this right? Like, I shed my blood. Jesus, I shed my own blood so that he could be pardoned of this. So that that reconciliation between the offender and the offended could happen. This conversation happens Every single time you sin, that God goes to the Father, intercedes for us. He says, Father, forgive them. God looks at Jesus, he looks at his sacrifice. We're even paid in full. And listen, I don't know about you, I know I sin the same way often. Over and over and over. And you'd think that Jesus would get tired of this conversation, right? Like going to the Father every time, Sam did it again. Here we are for the billionth time. And you'd think that maybe some resentment starts to build up in Jesus' spirit. Like, hasn't he figured this out by now? Shouldn't he have learned by now? Listen, but that's not what Jesus says. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 4. Where the author of Hebrews is telling us about this high priest who has been appointed to act on behalf of men in relationship to God. He says in, oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's not helpful. He says in verse 14, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You know what that means? That means Jesus understands the fragility of our nature. He sees, this makes sense why you would be in the billionth conversation here. He's compassionate. He sympathizes with us. Listen, there is not a single moment when Jesus 
has this conversation half-heartedly with God. There's not a single time where Jesus approaches the Father with an eye roll and just like, I can't believe we're here again. Every time Jesus goes to the Father to mediate, to go to the Father and to, to be the pardon for your sin, to be that mediator, he does it with just as much fervor as the first time he did it when you came to faith. Every single time. And listen, I'm praying that somebody in this room today would, would step into faith the first time and ask, God, would you trust, the, would you look at the sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf and call me pardoned of my sin? Would you reconcile me to yourself through the blood of Jesus? But what that means for you, Christian, it means that you don't have to be bogged down by your guilt. That Jesus has settled your bill and now, instead of being in the red, you're in the black. That you've been reconciled to God, that you've been given everything you need for righteousness. That is, if you confess your sin, if you own your sin and turn to Jesus. If, if you don't do that, none of this is here for you. You've got to go toe-to-toe with the Father on your own. But Jesus is a willing mediator not, not only is he the mediator, he himself is a ransom. He's the payoff. Ephesians 2 tells us that we were once far off. We were once far off. We were once disconnected and, and lost. But now you are brought near by the blood of Jesus. Man, what good news. Now, what good news. Here... here what good news, because we live in a society right now where 50% of Americans say that they're lonely. And those are just the 50% who are going to admit to it on some random survey. I guarantee you there's more. And the church isn't immune. Like we step, step into church on a Sunday morning and we see God's people gathered. Somebody might be feeling the deepest feeling of loneliness they felt maybe in their life. Because you can be well connected, you can be socially active, and still have a deep sense of loneliness. Because loneliness isn't a matter of proximity, but a matter of connectedness. And we were made for that. We were made to have that deep connectedness with other people and ultimately with God. That in God's design for us, we are relational creatures. I think it's so funny how God can use loneliness to bring people to himself. In fact, that one, one, part of my story in college was I was in a season where I was so lonely. And God just used like, what Christian community was to sort of woo me to himself into a deeper way. To pull me out of my loneliness because like, we all want to belong. We, we all have a desire to belong, do we not? And there's a draw to looking at the church and seeing, man, these people are kind of like me. Like, they're kind of messed up, but they seem to, like, get along. They love Jesus. Like, maybe I could fit in here. But the draw to being part of the church is never really about the church. The connectedness of the church is just, it's the overspilling of the connectedness that we experience with God in the gospel. 
that God has pursued deep connection with us. It's in fact the thing that our souls most crave as relational creatures. Now, if you're connected to God, then every other relationship in your life is like, it's like a sweet cherry on top. And what a gift. So special. But, but if we are not connected to God in a deep way, everything else will leave you wanting. Every other relationship you have will leave you wanting. Your, your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, your family, even your missional community, even the people in the church, it'll leave you wanting. And what will happen is you end up overdrawing. You'll, you'll become relationally needy, constantly drawing off of people. And what happens is when people get worn out, they start to push away. And what happens? You feel lonely again. And the cycle repeats over and over and over again. And unless you understand and believe the incarnation, that feeling doesn't go away. The incarnation tells us that God isn't distant from us. He's not isolated in some corner of heaven just hoping things pan out down here on earth. No, no, no. The incarnation tells us that God is near to us, that God is pursuing us, that God has come onto our turf. Eugene Peterson says that, that, that John 1 tells us that God put on flesh and he moved into the neighborhood. That, that you're not alone, that Jesus has come near to us. He wants to commune with us, that this idea of Eden, in fact, really, that was one of the keystones, the, the cornerstones of, of the beauty of the Garden of Eden was that Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the cool of the day. They had the deep connectedness with God that they just looked forward to that part of the day. And now, in the incarnation, we're starting to see how Eden is being restored forever. In the Great Commission, when Jesus is sending the church out he says, as you go, listen, know this. Behold, I am with you until the end of the age. That he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. That Jesus is nearer to you than your next breath. And because the spirit of God resides in you if you're a Christian. Like that, that God has made you his temple. The church is where he now dwells. So every time you feel lonely, you don't, you don't need to despair. You don't need to feel bad about that. Every time you have that feeling of loneliness, it's an invitation. God is inviting you to come near because he has already sought you out. But I'm afraid we are too preoccupied many times to give him our attention. That, that we're just caught up in the hustle that we can't meaningfully engage. We got kids to run from soccer practice to band practice. We got projects to do around the house. We got this TV series that we want to binge. We got birthday parties, family responsibilities. We got trips and vacations and all these sports that are just demanding our time. And when we do try to make an attempt to connect with God, a lot of times it feels hurried. Like I've got a five minute window. I got a 10 minute window. So I got to come at my Bible and I just really got to get after it. It feels sort of forced. We're just busy people. And our busyness 
very well might be what is keeping us in this lonely place, keeping us from connecting in a meaningful way. See, God wants to connect with us. But you've got to see here, the, the incarnation, seeing Jesus as this great high priest, the gospel is more than just being made right with God. That, that's sort of a legal transaction, right? Paul uses a courtroom scenario where a judge looks at an, a, 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 the defendant and says, not guilty. But the gospel is more than that. It is that, but it's more than that. The gospel is about being with God. It's about being with Jesus. It's about having a relationship with Him, this deep connectedness. In fact, the next line of Hebrews chapter 4, if you go to verse 16, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The incarnation tells us Jesus drew near to us. Now we have a great high priest that we can draw near to God through. That we can draw near to the throne of grace. That we can lay hold of his mercy. What he has done for us and being the sacrifice and the mediator. And listen, when you lay hold of God's grace like this, it's not just like punching a get-to-heaven card and business as usual from on. No, no, no. When you experience God's grace, this is life-transforming. N.T. Wright says, The Word through whom all things were made, the Word that became flesh, is now the Word through whom all things are being remade. That Jesus' supernatural birth pays the way for our supernatural rebirth. God has made us a new creation. He is making us like His Son. First Peter two, or Second Peter chapter one, verse four says that through the gospel that we become partakers of God's divine nature. That we're changed, and as God's changed people, we now assume some of the same identity that Jesus had. That that we are commissioned. We are sent into our communities as missionaries. We're sent into the workplace as ambassadors. People who are incarnated in our city, in our neighborhood. People who are devoted to connecting the lost to the one who came to pursue them. That's the type of people we become. People who are confident that Jesus has paid the price for sin. People who draw near to God because he has drawn near to us. And people who care passionately about the lost and want to see other people come in. See, this is why we need the incarnation, day by day. There's the promise that He's with us until the end of the age. Father, we thank You for the gospel truth. We thank You that You have come near to us. In fact, we didn't have to try to climb the ladder to heaven. Jesus came down. Jesus came and He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve to die. In fact, this, this Lord's Supper that we're about to partake in testifies to that fact that He was the Passover lamb, the true and better Passover lamb that was slain. And, and, and even in taking the physical elements, it's a reminder that we can have you. 
That as we consume the elements, it's a reminder that Jesus, the Holy Spirit, is in us now, working out our salvation. Drawing us nearer and nearer. And making us ambassadors for Christ. Father God, we pray that you would bless this table now. That you would do this work in us, God, and send us out as your people pleading on behalf of our Savior. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.